Lance, I was hoping you would read the last paragraph of your preface. A traditional biography this is not, but none of us live traditional biographies anymore. The future is behind us before we can ever live it. No one could keep up. But DJ Screw slowed down the world. And over the years, his music has continued to grow and prove more relevant and influential across generations. Screw set off a wave. May that wave circle the world forever. That was Lance Scott Walker reading from his soon-to-be-released book, DJ Screw, A Life in Slow Revolution. In the 1990s, DJ Screw's syrup, slow, chopped and screwed sound not only took over Houston hip-hop, but all of hip-hop, and it remains one of Houston's defining sounds. Today, I'm talking about DJ Screw with Lance Walker and with DJ Screw's friend Derek Derek Dixon, owner of the entertainment company Rec Shop Nation. It's Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. Lance and Derek, thank you all for doing this. Lance, could you give us an overview? Who was DJ Screw? What makes him so important? DJ Screw was a DJ from Houston and Smithville, Texas, who pioneered his own style of mixing and mixtapes and sort of artist development through the 1990s in Houston and developed a sound that for a lot of people really reflected how the city feels, how the city moves. And on his tapes, talked about the culture of Houston in a way that resonated with people that in a way to where they still hold dear his recordings to this day. Yeah. Derek, how would you describe that sound? What what makes it distinctive? You know records, you know music. What is it? It's very warm sounding. Um, it's slow, right? It's slow, it's warm, and it's just, uh, it's real melodic and um, it's soothing. You don't have to actually be on drugs, but it, it makes you feel yeah. euphoric in a sense, man. And, and it brings so much attention to the music. And there's parts of elements of songs that bypassed us sometimes. And I think when it's, it's screwed and it's slowed down, you can feel a lot of the things that you may have missed. You just said when it's screwed. What does it mean to be chopped and screwed? What was that technique that DJ Screw pioneered? It's controlling the pitch. Of the, of the song, slowing it down, the, the, the tempo, the speed of it. You know, when you distort sound, it creates a, a, a different tone to the voice and stuff. So it gives it a this deep tone to it. Yeah. And, uh, so that like uh, underwater. Yes, yes. Now we chill now we just lean and we coming up in the pop up on the scene. Stretched out. There you go. <laughs> so when you say that captures the feel of Houston, how do you mean? I think of Houston as being frenetic. I don't think of it as slow. Well, traffic for one. <laughs> I mean, you know, you spend any amount of time in Houston and you're probably driving and you're probably uh-huh. stuck in traffic somewhere and it's hot and you're probably moving slow. Yeah. And that music, that music perfectly fits that for people. There's humidity in that music. You know, Rex, right. oh, Rex yeah. said it perfectly. It's warm. You know, there's there's yeah. humidity in that sound, and it, it just feels like the air of Houston. You know, he nailed it. Nobody. Nobody is moving fast in August. Right. And Screw wasn't moving fast in any month. <laughs> 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 
Lance, can we back up and talk about DJ Screw's early life? He was born Robert Earl Davis Jr. in 1971. You know, he grew up between Smithville and Houston. He actually and lived- And Smithville is a little fly speck town out in the Hill Country. It's in the Hill Country, about an hour outside of Austin, pretty close to Bastrop. Mm-hmm. So country. It's in the country, mm-hmm. yeah. When he was born, his family lived there. And then when he was still in diapers, they moved to Houston. They actually lived on the north side for the first several years of his life. And then about the time of like late elementary school, middle school- The family moved back to Smithville, which is where his family was from. And that was in the early to mid 80s, which is when we started seeing hip hop in film. We started seeing hip hop really break out into the mainstream. An experience of seeing the movie Breaking was really what opened Screw Up to the idea that he might be able to be someone who could be an artist like that. Not so much the rappers and not even so much the breakdancers, but the turntablist. In that movie, uh-huh. you know, Chris the Glove Taylor, you know, Ice T's DJ. Power music is truly unique as the glove comes the rhythm to the hip hop beat. He saw that, he saw those hands at work, and he fell in love with that and, and felt something inside of him that said, I can do that. And so he's about how old at that point? When he moved to Houston, he was 15 mm-hmm. years old. So, okay. you know, 1986. And, um, yeah. and so he's around then. Uh, different influences, different people, different music. You know, he's got a, a radio show where they're they're playing hip hop on Saturday mornings at, at Texas Southern. Mm-hmm. There's record stores where he can buy records that he couldn't buy in Smithville. Right. And he's around people that are introducing him to... He's in the city. He's in the city. Yeah. He's being introduced to new music that he, ha- he wouldn't have heard before. And he's meeting new people that are inspiring him in, in different ways. And so progressively over the years, he starts making personal mixtapes for people and And then eventually those, you know, he buys more equipment and those people start freestyling, rapping, doing shout outs on those mixtapes. And eventually that gets to the point when you've, you know, got people who are enterprising enough, you know, like Fat Pat and Lil Kiki, you know, they get on there and they start freestyling. And then it becomes its whole new art form that that the entire city responds to because they're hearing about their culture on those tapes. And it just continued to grow and grow throughout his lifetime to the point where he had lines of cars you know, lining up outside of his house every night to buy those tapes. Yeah. And eventually he had to open a store just so he could sell just those tapes. I mean, part of the legend is just, he didn't wait for people to sell his tapes. He just started, what, selling them out of the trunk of his car? Yeah, out of his apartment. And then as he kept getting kicked out of apartments because he had too much traffic, <laughs> you know, he, he got a house. And then, you know, then there was too much traffic coming to the house. So he opened up a store. So, Derek, what were you hearing about him before you moved to Houston? What was the word on the street? It's kind of crazy because I was actually going back and forth between Atlanta and Houston. I was living there at the time. so And I was just hearing about it from the streets and I heard it just like everybody else, the tapes and the music. I, I hadn't really established a relationship with him yet when I first heard of him. First time I heard it, I was like, what is this? Do you remember the first time you heard it? Where was that? I was in a car somewhere with some friends. Oh, see, I think it's car music. Yeah. Sipping some purple stuff I had never had before in my life, to be honest with you. It was like they came, it's like I did both of them at the same time. I heard school music for the first uh-huh. time and I sipped some syrup for the first time. It was a long time ago though. I was young. That's what the culture was. That's what we were doing. And he was creating that culture. And that was, it was that immersive Mm -hmm. experience. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little more, Derek, about the purple drink, Lean? Because I think that is so important to this music, you know? It's kind of like what LSD was to the Beatles. It's like, (laughs) 
It's the headspace that you're in. For people who've never heard of it, what is it? What does it look like? It comes in a styrofoam cup. <laughs> I think everybody at some point in time have taken some type of medication yeah. that kind of have you sedated. It's, it's no different. Yeah. I mean, it's codeine, right? Good. It's codeine. That's it. Yeah. Cough syrup. And, you know, and I hate the, the negative connotations that come with it because it it's so much more involved in that. You know, every generation have their things that they do. Every culture have drugs and different, you know, things they do. And um, syrup just happened to be, you know, part of this. But I, I think the music and the, you don't have to sip syrup to appreciate it. You don't have to be on any of it. Like, you know, like every time I listen to it, it that wasn't a part of it. We should say also that, you know, Scrooge was making this music for years before Codeine was ever a, a part of the scene. The music did not come from Codeine. Codeine goes with the music for a lot of people, but it's not a necessary component. Correct. And he was making slowed tapes yeah. in this style really yeah. for years before he ever tried Codeine. Yes. So it was the drug that matched the music. It was a drug that was there already. It was a drug yeah. that was around, yeah. you know, yeah. generations before we're drinking it. Different different ways, different right. styles, maybe not always with the styrofoam cup or with the big red, but mm -hmm. uh, it, it had been around. Yeah. yeah. So... One of the things I always thought was so interesting about DJ Screw was he traveled with a group, you know, the screwed up click. D-Rack, can you talk some about that? Who who was in that and what was it like? When you're creating music, um, like even with a label or a group, you know, it's a group thing. People compliment each other. And Screw, if you had to look at it, he was taking music mm -hmm. and, 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 and reproducing it. And the uh, screwed up click members were basically the artists that were performing over this music. And a lot of it started off from them freestyling and just coming off the top of their head. You had Lil Kiki, you had Fat Pat, you had different people. At some point in time, though, pretty much anybody who was a part or hung out at Screw's house or whoever rapped on a Screw tape, later it really became almost like a fraternity of people. What started off as probably a small group of people just freestyling and rapping. And of course, um, Screw was going to select who was the best, you know, and those ones that were the best right. got the most play and the most airtime and the popularity of the streets and the people start asking for more Fat Pat and asking for more Kiki than they probably asked for other people. Uh -huh. So, you know, you had the core stars of the Screwed Up Click, but then you also have just a whole fraternity of people that were close to Screw and supported the music and the culture and helped push this forward. Right. We all SUC, you know? Yeah. Lance, Lance SUC now, you know what I'm saying? So, you know what I mean? That's, yes, ma'am. Lance, I wanted to talk to you a little about this book, because you are, let's just say it, you're not an original member of the Screwed Up Click. You not are, original, no. You're a white punk rocker, grew up in Galveston? Yeah. What drew you to this? Well, you know, I started working on a, a book project with the photographer Peter Best in uh, 2005, and we were studying Houston in general, Houston rap artists from, from all the generations. The study of DJ Screw was in tandem with that. He just started emerging as, as someone who I felt like needed a, a book dedicated to him because the, the way that people talked about him and the way that people remembered him and the obviously the, the kind of mythology that, that surrounds him. DJ Screw yeah. didn't have, you know, kind of mainstream record label and anything like that. So his story hadn't really been put out there. Right. You know, his story was kind of loose and kind of pieced together. But what I realized after, as I was talking to people who knew him, was that there was so much of his story that, that wasn't out there and that, you know, and that plenty of parts of it were wrong. 
you know, first and foremost, I love Houston and, you know, I've loved Houston ever since I was a kid, even growing up in Galveston. And I thought Houston was such a great uh, place of culture. And, and, and so a lot of things that I do are for Houston. And I felt like this was something I could do for Houston. Derek, you were here in the late 90s. Do you remember what it was like when Screw started taking off nationally, when suddenly everybody was interested in what was going on in Houston? You know, when he went to New York and the murder dog and the attention started coming, you know, from that standpoint, Screw had many opportunities, probably to have a bigger platform than what he even had then. But it's hard to explain this guy. Like, that's what made him so remarkable beyond his artistic side, just who he was as a person. And um, he was just true to what he was doing. He was doing everything at his own pace, his own speed. He wasn't doing it for no other reason than he loved it. And that radiated out. There was no desire to be on this big platform. And I, I think some of it missed us. Everybody was just moving forward and pushing the culture. And Lafayette and Lake Charles and Dallas and everywhere around here was probably three times more important to us than what was going on in New York or LA or anything like that. Which is maybe the mark of a real culture Yes, when you're so immersed in it. So part of the DJ Screw legend is how young he was when he died. Did you think when he died at age 29 that he had changed the culture? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's weird because what was small to the rest of the world was monumental to us. When Pat died. So Fat Pat, he died in, what, 98, a couple of years before Screw died? Yeah. Mm -hmm. When he passed away, man, like his funeral, they had to shut 288 down. I mean, they had helicopters flying. They had, cousins, they had cars all down the street with his posters on right. them and slabs out and everybody just like the whole city. And so you knew it shook the axis of, of, of this culture. And so... When Screw passed, I mean, come on, you know, if that's what happened for Pat and that's what happened for the godfather of it, we knew that, um, you know, the gate opener, the one who had the platform that allowed all these mm -hmm. guys to actually get opportunities that they would not have gotten, we knew we had lost him. Yeah. You know, and that's in a selfish way. You know, we knew we lost a good friend. We knew we lost a great person. And we also lost um, the person that had the platform that was opening up all so many doors for so many people, man. So it was definitely a big loss. And as far as we were concerned, it was a shock to our whole culture, the movement and, and everything. Man. It was terrible. He was definitely too young. It was definitely too early. And um, we definitely missed him then and we still miss him right now. Lance, you chose to write this biography as an oral history. You know, it's not what I was expecting. Why did you do that? Um, Why did you want to go get the voices of the people who'd known Screw? Because I didn't know him, you know, and uh -huh. the people that I interviewed for the book did know Screw and they do have stories to tell about him. And while, you know, I can be a perfectly fine guide to take you through that history and be the one who, you know, I've done a lot of heavy lifting to kind of put timelines together and put things together right. and your own kind of chopping and screwing base a history on yeah, a very different know, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and put and piece together a timeline based on things that I know are true, you know, births, deaths, release dates, you know, major events, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And, and then, you know, kind of put together the rest of it based on people's memories because I didn't have screw to interview. You know, he wasn't here. He died four years before I started working on this this whole you know bigger project there were only a handful of interviews with him so i felt like the way to really tell his story was to talk to the people who knew him 
and the people who loved him and worked with him and were a part of his life. And, you know, if he, if he were to, to look down and see a book that was about him, he would want to know that it was full of the voices of the people that, that he knew. And, you know, I just thought that that was the, the most important thing. And I, and I worked really for years to try to figure out how I could do that, to not have it sort of be hamstrung by just being an oral history where it's just other voices. That's great and everything, but it's got its limitations mm -hmm. where I figured out a way where I could, let me tell you the story as a storyteller, but let me pass off the mic as much as I can, because that's the way Screw did it. I wanted the book to feel like that too. The book to feel like a compendium of people who knew him and, and to, to tell their stories and with their personality and, and have those personalities reflected in the kind of whole patina that is uh, the, the life of DJ Screw. Dirac, now that you're looking back on it all, how do you think Screw has affected the world? How did he change things here? Um, I think when you can say you created a whole new genre <laughs> of anything yeah. and be the only person that can say you did that, I think that that alone speaks volumes of you know what its impact has been. And you can see it. It's still in the music. It's still um, revel to this day. Um, I mean, Drake's, you name the biggest artists in the world right now, not just rap artists, um, rock bands and, and artists of all genres of music that appreciated what he did, respected, and have incorporated it into their music and their sound right now. So I think that speaks for itself that he shook the axis of the music business. And I know he's proud of that. I know his family's proud of that. I know I'm proud to say, you know, not only that I knew him, but that he was a friend, you know, and somebody that was um, just as wonderful outside of that as he was inside. And I think people don't speak about that enough. Like his ability to pull people together, his just natural without even trying. Like the most quiet, how can the quietest person in the room speak the loudest? You know, how can the person with the same tone have so much uh, impact and everybody just wanted to work with him? And that type of environment and that type of energy radiated into all of it, man. So I just always want people to know as great a creator as he was, I promise you, I'm not saying this. People talk great about people after they pass, but I'm telling you, I'd have told you this while he was alive. He was a remarkable human being, a great, great person, just period, you know? And uh, I think it came out in the music and I'm fortunate to uh, be a part of his world. Thank you both so much for talking with me. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us. That was Derek D. Rec Dixon and Lance Scott Walker. Walker's book, DJ Screw, A Life in Slow Revolution, will be released May 17th. We'll have a link to it in our show notes. And now I'm here with producer Farrell Gibbs. Farrell, what is in the news in Houston today? Thank you, Lisa. Well, if you are looking for something to do this weekend that feels a little bit like Apocalypse Now, you can shoot feral hogs in the area with a machine gun from a helicopter. Companies like Hella Bacon out of Bryan will, for somewhere in the range of two to $8,000, depending on your party size, outfit you with a semi-automatic AR-15 and then swoop you down on top of feral hogs, which are considered to be exotic, non-game animals around here that can be hunted using any method at any time of year. This is all according to a new article by Ryan Nickerson of the Houston Chronicle. People are reportedly coming from all over the country to do this. California, New York, Chicago. It, quote, reminds them of the Wild West. It's an experience that they cannot get back home. 
The company owners say that this method of hunting is very effective. The sound of the chopper blades gets the group of hogs running, and then once out in the open, the customers are invited to let the bullets fly. Chris Britt, who is the co-founder of Hella Bacon, said that, quote, it's very safe and it's very controlled, but the concept sounds so outlandish and exciting. It's really a big draw. People enjoy the experience. That is it for our show today. If you liked what you heard, please go to wherever you listen to this podcast and give us lots of stars. It helps people find us. We will be back tomorrow. Talk with you then. I have to write shorter sentences.